So uh, this evening, uh, we're going to be continuing in uh, Genesis chapter 18. And uh, I understand that um, last week you guys had a very good lesson in circumcision, and I'm glad I wasn't here. <laughs> Was there any takers afterwards? <laughs> Yeah, Don was sore. I, I heard about that. Not by the sword. Not by the sword. Well, I don't remember. So anyway, but uh, yeah, so we're going to return back to Genesis and uh, we're going to look at uh, chapter 18. And um, this chapter is a return to a very familiar um, motif or a divine motif on uh, judgment. Uh, and, and it's a story very similar to the flood narrative. You guys remember the flood and we'll kind of go through that a little bit. Um, but God completely destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, just like he did the people uh, during the times of Noah, uh, simply because they were depraved. There's a lot of parallels to our society today and our nation. Uh, and even us as individuals can become very depraved if uh, we don't stay close walking to the Lord. And in this story, God's decision to spare a remnant in Lot and his family appears to come not so much because of Lot's righteousness uh, as it did with Noah. And, uh, and we're also going to see that um, we're also going to see that uh, Abraham uh, becomes an intercessor. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, intercessory prayer as well. Now, we also saw that uh, Abraham has consistently been a blessing to Lot and his family, uh, fulfilling God's promise that Abraham... Uh, would be a blessing. We saw that in uh, chapter 12, verse 2. But the last time Lot was in trouble was in chapter 14. And Abraham, as you recall, went to war uh, and saved him, saved the day. But this time he goes to war, but on his knees. And so we're going to see a little bit about uh, how he battles for Lot and his family in prayer. So tonight, let's continue looking at the life of Abraham. Abram is uh, what he was called at first. And you guys talk, you guys went through that uh, part of the study um, as well as exalted father. His name was changed in chapter 17 to Abraham. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we noticed that Abraham was called. He finally got his calling. And it was very clear to him. Now, we also know that Abraham was from the land of Ur, the Chaldeans, uh, which today would be modern-day Iraq. Uh, and that's where he was from. So he was called from Iraq, basically, or the land of the Chaldeans, to the land of promise, or Canaan. And then we noticed in chapter 12 his carnality and he, how he didn't trust the Lord and he really did not grab hold of the promise. But where, where did he end up going? Do you guys remember where he ended up going during this time? He went to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And so at the end of chapter 12 and part of 13, we see a lot of Abraham's carnality. Goes down, he's trusting in the arm of the flesh, and uh, he's trusting in what he can see and not what God is going to do for him. Very typical what uh, we have a tendency to do, especially as guys, as providers. You know, if there's a need in our family, the first thing we want to do is try to meet that need, right? We're fixers. And uh, sometimes as fixers, that can get in the way of, of allowing us to trust God. So in chapter 14, we saw a different side of Abraham. We saw now his courage. And 
as he, along with 318 trained servants, went against a coalition of four kings uh, headed by uh, the king of Elam in Persia, who subdued five cities. And Abraham went after them. He rescued Lot. He delivered the spoils of war back to those kings. And even though, even as far going as Sodom, uh, to take it back. And also in that chapter, we saw uh, Abraham's communion, um, where he met Melchizedek, who brought uh, bread and wine and entered into a relationship with Abraham. And we're going to talk about relationship and how important that is um, to have a relationship with God this evening. And in chapter 15, we saw Abraham's covenant. And God told Abraham to look up and said, See all those stars? Your descendants are going to be like those stars. And it says, And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And that's a very key verse, as we've already kind of uh, uh, established in chapter 15 for uh, Abraham and his calling. So God establishes his covenant all the way through to this point, but it came to a real prominence in chapter 15. Now, in chapter 16, we saw Abraham's compromise where um, his wife, Sarah, said, look, I've got this young Egyptian handmaid named Hagar, and I'm obviously too old to have children. And Xavier likes to call it. She's a young, little, sweet, little wiggly thing, right? So, you know, what do they do? They decide that uh, they're going to go and fulfill God's promises together. So now they're partakers in the sin. And um, so we see that uh, they try to help God fulfill his promise Uh, by Abraham going and having a sexual relationship with Hagar and conceiving a child uh, through her. So in chapter 17, um, now uh, Abraham's name was changed as we saw, but this is also where we saw Abraham's circumcision. And, um, you know, he was 99 years old when this event took place. And I know that that emphasis was made last week. So I'm not going to say anything more about that, only to say that, you know, that's a recurring theme through this part of Genesis with Abraham that, uh, you know, God wants to, uh, to make very, very clear. So we now come to chapter 18, and that chapter 18 is really the contrast, Abraham's contrast. And we're going to see two different contrasts. We're going to see Abraham contrasting his life with Lot, and then we also see the contrast between Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So the contrast between Abraham and Lot, there is a big difference between the two. Would you guys agree? Uh, A big difference. Um, Because this chapter and next week, chapter 19, we're going to see both of these lives together. We're going to see what we should be doing as men following the Lord and trusting him and what we shouldn't be doing, which is kind of doing our own thing and, and following in the arm of the flesh. So Abraham... He, li- he lives a very blessed life. On the other side of that, when you look at wa- uh, Lot, he lives a very afflicted life. Would you guys agree? Lot has a life that was spoiled, if you will. However, he chose to not follow God. And, uh, and so we're, we're going to get into that. But, I mean, it was a very fascinating study for me. Now, if you guys recall Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I would have to say that that really fits Abraham. He was an extremely blessed man. 
He was blessed because he was a blessing to others. And the promise was that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed, but not Lot. His life, as we talked about already, is, was afflicted, and Lot lost everything. On the other hand, when you look at Abraham, as he got older, he continued to follow the Lord, and God continued to bless him. He just kept gaining and gaining. And we're not just talking material wealth because he was a wealthy man. But, I mean, we see, you know, from the time in, in chapter 6, he was kind of doing his own thing with his wife. And all of a sudden, you see that transformation. C.S. Lewis once said, if you put first things first, second things will be thrown in. If you seek second things first, you will gain neither first things nor second things. Now, that statement by C.S. Lewis goes hand in hand with what Jesus said. If you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things kind of will be tossed, tossed in and added unto you uh, as well. So, you know, we, we clearly see that uh, Abraham, you know, chose to follow first things first when he got his priorities right. So let's take a look at uh, Genesis chapter 18. I love this chapter. It's long, but I promise we'll get through it uh, tonight. So turn with me to chapter 18, and we'll start with verse 1. And then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And so he lifted his eyes, and he looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And after that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. And so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and a good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. And therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great nation and a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And then the men turned away from there and went outward, uh, went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I found thirty there. And he said, Indeed now, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. And then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Very unusual story. The story of three visitors that come and uh, visit Abraham unexpectedly in the heat of the day. Um, they're unusual because one of them is called the Lord. Uh, and in fact, it's so unmistakable, it says in verse 1, then the Lord. And the term is the term there, Lord, is Yahweh, the covenant name, that uh, tetragrammaton of the Old Testament, the uh, YHVH. And the covenant name that God will introduce himself as to Moses uh, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. But the Lord shows up with two others. And now we can only guess who these people are, who these guys are, uh, as they're all di uh, disguised as three human beings. They're three Bedouin-like visitors um, who are nomadic and have historically kind of roamed the, um, uh, and inhabited the Arabian and the Syrian deserts. And they travel through and they visit with Abraham and then they leave toward Sodom. And we'll discuss them as we go on, and we'll try to identify at least as best we can who they are. But what I want to zero in on in the first uh, several verses is, is the idea of what it means to be the friend of God. It's a beautiful title, if you really think about it. And it's one that when we hear the concept that you could be God's friend, it just boggles your mind, doesn't it? I mean, how, how can I be God's friend? I can barely be a friend to my wife or even my best friend, you know? But how, I mean, to be God's friend, it just, it, it boggles your mind. I mean, God doesn't need us. 
you know, there's nothing that we can offer him. He is self-sufficient, if you want to call it that. So to be God's friend, I mean, blows my mind. Especially when you consider what Jesus said in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father, I have made, made known to you. Three times in the Bible, Abraham alone is given the title friend of God. And the first time it appears is in Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, when King Jehoshaphat of Judah refers to Abraham as the friend of God. And then the last time that it appears is James 2.23, where James quotes the famous verse in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for what? For righteousness. And he was called what? The friend of God. But the other time is the one that really interested me. And that is found in Isaiah chapter 41. And um, there's no need to turn there, but if you want to write it down, you can take a look at it a little bit later. Uh, but Isaiah 41, where God says to Israel, you are Israel, my servant, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. So the question, what kind of attributes do you think it would necessitate for us to be a friend of God? Something to think about. And we're going to talk about what that looks like and what some of those attributes are. So let's kind of work our way through this passage. I'll give you four of these attributes. And if you want to be God's friend, here it is. The first, it's spontaneity. Now, some of you guys may not like that. Uh, some of you guys have a regiment. You go to work, eat the same thing for breakfast, so on and so forth, okay? But to be a friend um, of God, you've got to allow some spontaneity in your life. And I'm going to tell you why before you guys start giving me these funny looks, okay? Um, because God just happens just to show up at unconvenient times for us, but it's very convenient for him. Would you guys agree to that? He shows up. He's unexpected. He's not going to tell you, hey, I'm going to be at your house or I'm going to be here next week at this time. You know, when trials come, when things happen, they just kind of happen. And we have to learn how to deal with it, right? So the Lord just kind of shows up. And we saw that in verses 1 and 2 where it says, you know, again, the Lord appeared to them or to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted his, up his eyes and, you know, we go on and we see that all of a sudden he's just kind of there and they're there. They just show up. Now, it's also mentioned that it was in the heat of the day. And we're told this by Moses probably for a reason. Moses is the human author of Genesis, although we know that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But during the heat of the day in the summer, people who lived in tents in those deserts in those days, and even to this day, um, don't do anything during the summer, during the middle of the day. Nobody travels. So you do your work, you're traveling early in the morning or late in the evening when it kind of cools down. But in the heat of the day, this is when this is happening. Now, I've been thinking about this as I've been preparing for this study, and I don't and I, I still haven't been able to figure out, and maybe never will, what the significance is of the heat of the day, okay? But I know that it's there for a reason. So maybe after the study, if you guys figure it out, please let me know because that's been baffling my mind all this time. But um, nobody does anything. They just kind of hang out. Um, it's kind of like where the siesta kind of was, you know, first uh, 
um, created and developed, you know, back in the Middle East. It just kind of thought it was a good idea. Take the middle part of the day, don't do anything, and just kind of sit there. You know, for those of you that have young kids, or like my niece, they call it uh, chillaxing. You guys heard that term? This is what they're doing. They're just Abraham's just kind of chillaxing. So Abraham wasn't expecting company, and this is the last thing he expected, somebody just to show up, uh, let alone three to just suddenly appear. But the Lord appeared, and if we're going to be God's friend, we just need to get used to the truth that God will suddenly change the direction of our life for whatever reason. He doesn't always explain it to us. He just says, you know what? Trust me or don't trust me, but it's going to be this way, right? How many of you guys have best friends? One or two, man. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Moving on. So, (laughs) well, that's true. Well, what I was going to say is that sometimes, you know, your best friends, they just kind of show up at your house unexpectedly, don't they? You know, they don't call. They don't say anything. I, I got a best friend like that, you know, just kind of shows up and, you know, wants to eat. And then after that, he's gone, right? But, um, but even Jesus gave an analogy of a spontaneous friendship. And we find that in Luke chapter 11, verse 5, where he says, Suppose one of you has a friend that goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. You guys remember that story? Well, you'd have a, you, you better have a very good friend to come at midnight and say, I forgot to go shopping, I forgot to go to Trader Joe's, and I need a loaf of bread because somebody just stopped on by. But there you are, you're, you're relaxing, your feet are up, you're enjoying the day, and then you get a phone call that just might uh, change the whole course of your future. And it could be God who's doing it. So we've got to be open to that. Isaac Newton wrote in what he called the first law of motion, listen to this, everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change were forces impressed upon it. I read that and I kind of laughed because, you know, I'm not going to pick on my best friend, but, you know, a long time ago, he he just, you know, didn't like to do a whole lot sometimes, just the same old thing, you know, unless he was compelled to do something. And it used to bug me because, you know, I kind of like doing stuff, you know, but it was interesting and I kind of laughed at this when I read that. And I guess we could call that really like the first law of the friendship between God and ourselves because, you know, God barges in, does whatever he wants, changes our life, disrupts it for the better. And, um, you know, there's a little beatitude that is not in Scripture, but it goes something like this, that um, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but, uh, you know, growing up and going through college, there were a lot of times that I felt that I was being bent and I was going to be broken in half, but, you know, God taught me a lot during that time. So in our friendship with God, you're going to have to just get used to this spontaneity, him just showing up, doing what he wants. You're not going to predict it, but we just have to understand that he kind of knows what's going on and he knows what's best for us. So here the Lord shows up. Sarah had no time to vacuum the tent. She had no time to put away Ishmael's socks or Abraham's socks or tidy up the place, um, he just kind of shows up. And so as we saw in this account, it mentions that the three men, um, you know, they, they just have really disrupted Abraham's household. Now, 
I want to talk about the three men. And we already kind of established that one of them is probably the Lord. Okay, whether we call it a theophany, um, the appearance of God in some human form, or whether you want to make it more precisely a Christophany, which is, you know, the appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Um, whichever we decide, God showed up in human form, okay? And it's not real clear when Abraham figured it out, but at some point, he, he kind of did. If we look at verse 22, I think there's a little bit more proof if we go down to verse 22. It says, and then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. So at some point, it became very clear to Abraham that this was God, and God was visiting him. So if there were three, and then the two of them leave, that leaves Abraham standing with the Lord. And in chapter 19, verse 1, we'll briefly note that it says, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So as the text goes on, we're starting to get a clearer, clearer picture that these were angelic beings, and the other one was the Lord. And so there's no mistaking, because, I mean, if you read some of these people's commentaries, it's amazing what they come up with. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing. So I'm not that bright, but, I mean, all you have to do is read the text, and it kind of explains some of it for us. So the second mark of being a friend of God um, is humility. And it says in verse 2, So Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. So I want to draw your attention to that phrase, bow to the ground, and the word bowed. It's a, it's a very important word for us to uh, really grab hold of here. We find it a hundred times in the Old Testament, and it's the Hebrew word uh, to bow down, to do homage to, to have reverence for. And it is the most frequently used word in the Old Testament. Uh, we translate it worship and to bow down and to worship. Um, you know, I, I was sitting here, I was listening to worship, and I was just thinking that the sound of men's voices when they worship are, are very powerful. And, you know, I, I was going to comment on worship a little bit later, but I just wanted to say that I was blessed sitting in the back listening to you guys worship. I really was. And uh, just wanted to say that it just, uh, it really blessed me. Now, in the Orient or the Middle East, especially back then, it was very typical to greet somebody who was um, a little bit more esteemed than you are, like, like royalty. You know, we've always seen, you know, royalty when people kind of, you know, bow down in the presence of a king or a queen. But, you know, in those days, you get on your knees, okay? You get on your knees, and then you would gently, slowly incline your bodies so that your forehead would touch the ground. So it was a sign of respect. It was basically saying, I acknowledge that you are greater. I acknowledge that you are higher than I and more revered than I. So I, I want to paint that picture for you guys. As you see, Abraham probably didn't really know who these guys were at first, but, you know, the text says he, he bowed down before them, realizing that, Something was, was different here. Again, let me emphasize that this guy, Abraham, was 99 years old, okay? And I don't know about you. I'm not 99. But when I get on my knees, sometimes I have a hard time getting up, okay? 
maybe it's years of just wear and tear or playing basketball with some of these young guys in the audience here, but um, I have a hard time getting up. So, you know, Abraham is, is bowing to these people. Um, he also has 318 paid trained servants, and he has a lot of flock, a lot of herds. He's already made an impact uh, in this culture, and he would be called in the Middle East today uh, someone like a, like a sheik, okay? Um, somebody who has and exerts great influence on a large number of people and is extremely wealthy. So, you know, as you, as you take a look at Abraham, he doesn't really need to be doing this. If anything, if there was a sense of pride in him, you might be saying, hey, how come you're not bowing to me? Who are you? You know, but uh, that's not what he does. He bows down. And that's an important point to remember is that worship is the proper response to a divine friendship and a relationship with God. And here's why. When worship is done right, it's one of the most selfless acts you could ever engage in for very obvious reasons. In worship, all of the focus is off of you and it's on to God. Have you guys noticed that? You know, like if you really get into worship, you know, like there's times when, you know, you get here on Sunday mornings or whatever and, and singing's going on and you just can't get your focus. And then there's other times you feel like you were in a worship zone. And you just know that you've just entered God's presence because nothing else, nothing else gets in your mind. Have you guys all had that experience before? Now, you know, some people don't worship, right? They say, I don't like the music. It's too loud. It's too hard. It's too fast. It's too slow. It's too whatever, okay? Um, or I can't sing. Or I don't have a singing voice. Unlike Don, right, Don? You got... <laughs> but they, all, they have all these excuses. You know, I don't have a singing voice. Well, who cares? Doesn't the scriptures say make a joyful noise? Doesn't say what kind of noise. I tell it to my wife all the time. You just make a noise. You know, God understands the language of the heart when you're trying to worship. Psalm 95, the psalmist writes, Come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Have you guys ever taken a look at that verse, the progression of it? Come, let us worship. So we are going to the Lord. We bow down. And then we kneel before the Lord, our maker. The same thing that Abraham did. There's a story about an old minister who survived the Johnstown flood back in Pennsylvania years ago, and he always liked to tell the story of how he survived the flood. Everybody he would meet, he would say, hey, have you heard how I survived that Johnstown flood? And they'd roll their eyes, and they'd tell it, he'd tell it to them anyway. Well, one day the old minister died, and he went to heaven. And he saw Peter, and Peter kind of told him, hey, you know what? We're going to be having a big gathering tonight. We're going to be telling our, our stories and giving our testimonies. And, and it's a testimony night here in heaven. And so the old minister got really excited, wide-eyed, ran up to Peter and said, hey, Peter, have you heard how I survived the Johnstown flood? And he began to tell him the story. And he said, I'd love to share that tonight with everybody else in heaven. And Peter hesitated. He said, okay. You can tell it, but just remember, Noah will be in the audience tonight. <laughs> I love that story. 
because it illustrates this truth. And the truth is, is that, um, <laughs> yeah, my, I let my wife read this story and she started laughing. And so, was, but um, it illustrates this truth that if you're going to tell about a flood and Noah's listening and he's in the audience, it better be a good flood, right? Because it changes the whole complexion of what a really good flood story is, right? So here's Abraham, 99 years old. He's very influential. He's a sheik by modern uh, and ancient terms. And he bows down before the Lord, realizing God is in the audience. And when God is in the audience, I may think I'm somebody important, but in God's presence, I'm not. And that's why during times of worship, and that's why I, I told you that I was really blessed by your worship, we should all be engaged, no matter what that is. Because God's in the audience and the worship is for him. Amen? So to have humility when you approach God requires two things. First, it comes from seeing God as he really is. And secondly, it comes from seeing yourself as you really are. And I guarantee you, worship will happen and it will be very natural if we see it from this vantage point, from this viewpoint. Now, you guys remember uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, as we continue looking at worship here, this is the one thing that just kind of came to my mind. I want to share with you, uh, King Uzziah, you know, had died, and it, Isaiah had a vision of God, and you guys know the story. You know, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord uh, sitting on the throne high and lifted up. You guys, you guys remember that? We, we sing a song, and uh, you want to sing it for us, Don? There you go. <laughs> but, I mean, think about this. His, his robe, you know, the train of his robe. You, you guys, you know, see like these uh, royalty weddings and stuff like that and the, and the you know, the soon-to-be queen or whatever she is, she comes in and her robe is like halfway down the, uh, you know, the church aisle. I mean, that's a very small picture of what Isaiah saw. But um, what a majestic view. And Isaiah goes on to say, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a generation of unclean lips because he realized just how insignificant he was and how significant this vision was that he saw. And he had a really good perspective. And so as we continue to move through this study tonight, I want you to place that in, in, in the best you can in your mind that this is probably what Abraham was experiencing. And he's just... You're going to see how he responded to it as we go through. So now the other thing is, is, you know, Isaiah, why did he say that? Why did he say that he was a man undone? Exactly. And I don't know about you, but he had just had an experience that very few people have ever had. I mean, he could have gone on a, I saw God speaking to her. You know, he could have gone on TBN because I'm sure that they would have loved to have him on TBN, right? Um, he could have written books. Um, but because he saw God for who he really was, he understood who he really was as a man. He was undone. He was insignificant. So a humility came out of that. And show me one person who's filled with pride. And I'll show you a person who is not a friend of God. And, and guys, it's so easy for us to forget that 
we have pride living in our sinful flesh. We just have to remember that that could be us. We could be that, that man that's full of pride and separated from that relationship with God. So, getting back to Abraham. So he saw these three men. He bowed himself to the ground. And uh, we already commented on verse 3 where he says, My Lord. Now, it's Adonai is the Hebrew word. And notice that Abraham refers to himself in this passage as your servant and calls God my Lord, Adonai, the mighty one, the almighty, the strong one. Uh, he gave him a very a powerful, uh, very significant uh, title, realizing who he was. I think it was Max Lucado who wrote something quite clever. Let me read this to you. He said, you don't boast about your paper, paper airplane when you're dealing with NASA. You don't brag about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso, and you don't claim equality with Albert Einstein because you can write H2O. And you don't talk about your own goodness in the presence of the perfect one. And that's kind of sort of the idea here. Abraham recognizes who he's with, and he bows down, and he calls him the Lord. And if we go on to verse 3, you know, we won't, uh, we won't read it again, but um, there's a third part of being God's friend. And in the first, we saw that it was spontaneity. The second is humility. The third is one of ministry and serving. And if you're going to be God's friend, there's going to be a requirement to serve the Lord and to get involved in the kingdom work. And again, isn't it remarkable that we read here that here's this 99-year-old man serving three guests in the heat of the day in the Middle East, he invites them into his tent. And, oh, by the way, that's a key issue. God only comes not only into our lives as new believers, but also into realms of our lives by invitation. Now, as guys, sometimes we are the worst at taking things and compartmentalizing things, right? But God's really good about breaking down those walls and saying, hey, you know what? I want all of you. And so, you know, by invitation is how the Lord uh, comes to us. He doesn't force himself upon us. And uh, I think it's important to note that here. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I'll come in and I'll sup with him. But you have to invite him in. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer here tonight, um, probably not going to have to twist your arm to serve, right? It's kind of an outward expression of what's going on inside your heart. You want to give back to the Lord. And um, so you're responsive. You know, I love the Lord. He's my best friend. I want to do for him, right? So we see that Abraham serves the Lord here, and he does it in three ways. And the first way he does it, he does it personally, okay? He's, he's I would imagine at some point, I, I don't know if I'll ever make it to 99 years old, but at some point, um, Lord willing, I'll get to an age where I'll be able to at least somehow understand what's going on here. It's hot. He's got 318 servants. It would be very easy for him just to kind of, you know, as you see these sheiks on TV or whatever, they clap their hands and, you know, tell their servants to go do this and do, this and, do that. Um, and then all of a sudden you watch them get real busy around them, right? He could have done that. But he didn't do that. He did this personally. He did it himself. Um, so if we're going to serve the Lord, then uh, we need to do it personally. Now, remember the priests in the Old Testament? Uh, even before they were to serve the congregation, God called them and he said, 
you know, you will serve me by doing this. So they were there to serve him first, um, although they were called servants of the Lord, but they offered sacrifices for the people. They taught the people the word, so on and so forth, but their number one obligation was to serve God. You guys remember that? Here's why I say that, because you guys might be involved in, in serving the Lord, you know, maybe here at the church or another church, um, but you're involved in serving, and by serving his people, you know, you guys might be feeling that, hey, you know, the, the ministry that I'm in, it's getting kind of old because not a lot of people see me or, you know, it's, it's kind of in secret and nobody really sees what I'm doing or you might be getting burned out. You know, sometimes, you know, we're, we're so zealous for the Lord that we will get involved in two, three, four, five ministries. And some people say, well, I'm kind of getting burned out. But you may be called to a ministry where nobody applauds you and or encourages you. They don't see what you do, so you kind of feel unappreciated, right? Nobody's going to agree to that? Okay. Well, you know what? It's not easy serving God's people, is it? I'm not sure where I got this. I think I got it from Xavier, but it's not easy in serving God's people because sheep bite back. And for those of you that are in ministries where you're dealing with the body, it's not easy. It's not easy. There's a couple ushers here tonight, so I know you guys know what I'm talking about. But serving the Lord makes all the difference. Jesus said, Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Ruth Cocken, in her poem called I Wonder, said this. She said, You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak you at a woman's club. You know how genuine my enthusiasm is at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. So number two, Abraham served immediately. Notice the language he hurried. Now, I, I love this one. He, uh, he said to his wife, quickly, go do something. And uh, I was teasing my wife, and she's like, mm, you better not add that. <laughs> but uh, he said to his wife, quickly, go do this. Um, he ran to the flock, and he said, hasten or quick, prepare the supper. Suffer, sorry, prepare the supper. <laughs> That too, yeah. <laughs> there, was a, there was a sense of urgency. There was a sense of immediacy to his service. Um, he wasn't going to wait around to his 100th birthday. I mean, he was going to get this done. So why is that noteworthy? Why do you guys think? No takers? Okay. Well, here's why. If you're waiting for the right feeling to get involved or the right ministry, it ain't going to happen. You just have to do it. You may not get another chance. There you go. <laughs> so here's the third thing about Abraham's service. He gave generously. He gave the best that he had. Look at verse 6. It said, Sarah baked bread from fine meal. And then in verse 7, the meat came from a tender and a good calf. So serving God should cost us something. Okay? 
So when David, when he went to go look for a threshing floor for the temple, he went to Arana to buy this floor, and the guy that was selling it to him said, listen, you know, you're David. Um, you're doing this for God. Go ahead and take it. It's free. I'm not going to charge you. You don't have to pay me. And what did David say? Uh-uh. No, no, no. If I can't present burnt offerings to the Lord from that which costs, I, I cannot present burnt offerings to the Lord from that which costs me nothing. Now, I don't know about you guys. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I had to redo my mom's house not too long ago, remodel it. And, you know, when the contractor said, hey, I'll throw that in for free, I was like, all right, right? But not here. I mean, if we're going to serve, it's got to cost us something. You know, for the guys that are in the usher ministry, it means getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning every Sunday morning. You know, for some of the guys that uh, are serving in the uh, coffee bar ministry, it's, uh, you know, it, it can be interesting dealing with uh, people that, you know, don't have cold or that have cold coffee or they don't get the right change or why are you laughing back there? Man? <laughs> He's in the coffee bar ministry. That's why. But uh, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's it, it it's got to be a sacrifice. So there's a good principle here, and the principle is this. Don't ever give God leftovers. We should give the Lord the very best of who we are, the best of our talents, the best of our time, our energy, and um, just the best because he gave us his best by sending Christ to die for us. So the least we can do is, is just give us the best of the abilities that he's given us. Amen? You heard about the farmer that had two cows, right? And he said, one's God's and one's mine. The problem is he never differentiated. So one evening when one of his cows was sick, he went out to the barn to tend it and came in a couple hours later and said, Honey, I've got bad news. God's cow just died. <laughs> it's funny, but we know people like that, don't we? These toys are old and used. Let's give it to the church. That piano's a piece of junk. Um, I'll bet the church can use it. I mean, those are some of the things that uh, you know, we're talking about here. So let's kind of move on here because we're quickly running out of time, and I don't know if I'm going to get through the study tonight. So, um, so in verse 9, you know, we got three strangers, you know, that come knocking on the door. And I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not sure that in the middle of the night, three Strangers knock on my door and they're asking for my wife. I'm not sure what's going through Abraham's head here, right? And so, uh, you know, they ask, you know, where's your wife? And I, and uh, he says, I, I wonder, I, I wonder, you know, I'm sure he's going through my mind. I'm going to wonder what they want. What's going on here? So as you recall, Sarah, um, she was the one that came up with the Hagar plan, right? Um, in chapter 16, Sarah told Abraham, you take my handmaid and you have a child through her because it can't happen through me. I'm too old. Um, you, probably can, you probably still got it, Abraham, to give birth to a child through a younger woman, but certainly not me. So now here we see that God's going to zero in on her specifically in verse 10. And so they're in one part of the tent. There's a flap. And she's on the other side making dinner. She's probably eavesdropping. She's probably listening to the conversation. And just in case we have forgotten the condition of this couple, verse 11, goes on to say again that Abraham and Sarah were old, and then they were well advanced in age, and to make it kind of like the final nail, nail in the coffin, it says that Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So the author really wants you to understand that this was an impossible feat. 
So then verses 12 through 15, we see that, you know, Sarah, she laughs and God busts her. You guys saw that? You know, she laughs within herself. So it wasn't something that was outward, but it was within herself. And she gets busted by God. You know, but what was interesting is that the Lord addressed this question to Abraham. And the reason, I think, is because Abraham was the head of the house, right? You know, God asked him, you know, why did Sarah laugh? Well, I'm sure he didn't have an answer, right? Because he probably didn't hear her. Now, it's interesting that in the previous chapter, when God made the promise to Abraham, he laughed. But God didn't say anything about it. He didn't address it with Abraham. And I think the reason for that is that Abraham believed God, right? And I think that uh, with Sarah, we're going to find out that it was probably because of unbelief that God dealt with her. Now, there are different ways to laugh, right? When a person laughs, it could be lighthearted. It can be an arrogant laugh. It could be a scornful laugh. And then there's that laugh of unbelief. And that's where I think that um, Sarah was being dealt with. Now, the fourth final mark of a friendship with God is conforming to his will. And Abraham believed God and was willing, even though he floundered, he failed, um, and he went along with Sarah's scheme a couple of chapters back. But he believed God and he was willing to walk in obedience. And in contrast, we see that Sarah displayed unbelief and an unwillingness to conform to God's will. So part of being friends with the Lord is to conform to his will and be willing to obey him. Jesus said in John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So if we want to be Jesus' friend, we've got to do what he says. We have to obey. Uh, we have to ask the Lord to find those areas or deal with those areas in our hearts, expose them to us, and then help him uh, help us to deal with them, whether it be going to the scriptures, going to prayer, going to another brother or whatever, and just helping us deal with them. So answer the question that God asked. Answer it in your own life. Is there anything too hard for the Lord in your life? Jeremiah said, Lord, you made everything, the heaven, the earth, everything. There's nothing too hard for you. And if you can believe the first verse of Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. It sort of makes everything else very, very simple. Guys, we all have difficult things that are going on. We always we all have trials. Um, you know, some of us have financial issues. And we just have to be able to go to the Lord and believe what he says. You know, sometimes we'll get to that point where we're like, okay, Lord, this bill's $3,500, and I don't know how I'm going to pay it. Well, first problem is that you said I, right? And the Lord doesn't want that. He's like, you know, I want you to bring it to me and trust me and let me figure it out. In Acts chapter 4, um, they were threatened for their faith, and they come together, and this is how they began their prayer in verse 24. They said, Lord, you're God. You're the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything that is in them, who by the mouth of the prophets said, and they quote Psalm 2, therefore look upon our afflictions. So we have quite a few examples in the word of how to go about dealing with our, our unbelief, how to deal with 
Um, you know, the, the attitudes that we get sometimes upon uh, not believing that God can take care of our needs and, and meet our needs. So these guys, before they got to their need, they recognized who they were talking to, um, that God has no limitations. And it's impossible to impose limitations uh, on the Lord. It's best to say, Lord, you can do anything. So I have this little $3,500 bill. It's nothing to you, Lord. Just show me what to do. Or, you know, I have a house going into foreclosure, Lord. It's difficult for my family, but I trust you. Uh, I trust in your promises. Show me what to do, Lord. And approach it in faith rather than in disbelief. Now, if we look at verse 16, you know, Abraham's walking the Lord out of his tent, which, by the way, when you guys have visitors at your house, it's a really good practice. It shows hospitality. And so Abraham is walking the Lord out of his house. And there in beginning verse 16, we have the story of the beginning of the story, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot will be in uh, Sodom in chapter 19, verse 1. So we're going to get to that contrast uh, a little bit more next week. But, um, you know, we see six times in the Old Testament it refers to Sodom and four times in the New Testament. It's become so infamous that the, the term Sodom has become a byword for sexual perversion. And we'll see just what kind uh, next week. But this begins the entire movement of God, excuse me, that God moving in dis, uh, on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if we look at verse 17 and 18, you know, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing since Abraham sh shall surely become a great and mighty nation and the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Well, now we kind of wonder who are they talking to or who, who is he talking to? Is he talking to himself? Is he talking to the two angels? Is this a, um, is this a com uh, communication between, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? We, we really don't know, but there's a lot of debate on that. But suffice it to say, the Lord said it, so, I mean, it's good enough that, you know, he, he's, he's kind of, um, he's kind of saying that, uh, you know, should we, should we involve Abraham? It's kind of a weird discussion, right? Look at verse 19, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, and that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So to me, this is very insightful. Here's Abraham and God says, hey, here's the guy that's going to bless the whole world. You know, he's, it's a reference to Jesus ultimately, um, to the seed of Abraham that Jesus will be born. And he will bless the world with the hope and offer of salvation. But in 19, notice God also sees that Abraham will influence the world. Uh, and he'll influence not only his own family, but then his family will influence the world. And we see that today with the Jews. They, they influence technology. They influence everything about our, our life today, including the political climate, right? Now, mark this about verse 19, again, that he may command his children and his household after him. Question, how many of you guys have kids here tonight? Okay. How many of them are, uh, are teenagers? Just a couple, right? How many of you guys remember having teenagers? <laughs> it's a different question. You know, 16% of the time, the, the kids are at school, which isn't really very much. And then if they go to church, you add one additional percentage point, 
So it makes it 17% that they're actually out of your house. So 83% of the time, they're with you. Okay? So you can see that there's a fallacy in those that say, you know, I send my kids to Christian school and a Sunday school, and I expect them to teach my kids what they need to know. Well, with both of those systems only having your kids for 17% of the time, um, it's a bad way of thinking, isn't it? So by pure mathematics, you exert a greater influence on your kids. So Abraham is learning this as God reveals it to him here. He goes, I have called you, Abraham, not just to bless the world, which is a pretty big order for your family. He's basically telling them, hey, this is like trickle-down righteousness, trickle-down you know, evangelism. You know, son, daughter, watch how I live you know, in the tent or in your home. And, you know, the, the, the time that you have with me, um, I want you to watch my life. I want you to learn from me what it's like to follow the Lord. And that's what Abraham's learning. That's what the Lord is wanting us to learn and what we want to be able to share with our kids. So as men, we need to lead and influence our family. And we need to understand that to live and follow Christ, uh, there's nothing, no better, better legacy that we can leave our kids. And oh, by the way, if you guys have teenagers, make sure you put them on the prayer chain tonight before you go home. <laughs> so, you know, at, with these kids, you know, the relationship is changing. They're becoming more and more adults. And, um, you know, I like this saying, I, I, don't, I forget who said it, but um, I had to look it up because I remember hear this, hearing this in a study one time about Mark Twain. And how he gave this advice about teenagers. Do you guys remember this? I think it was Xavier or somebody said this. But he said, everything runs smoothly until your kid reaches 13. And that's the time to put him in a barrel, snugly hammer the lid down, and feed him through the knot hole. <laughs> then when he turns 16, you close up the knot hole. <laughs> I think this has to be Xavier. I mean, it's, it's typical Xavier. So now we know that that was Mark Twain's advice, but I mean, you know, we, we can't do that. I know some of us feel like that, but we can't. But realistically, we can't afford to disengage with our kids. And I think we see that Abraham, even as old as he was getting, realized that God was saying, hey, you, you are going to be, you know, the father of many nations, but you need to take care of your, ho your home first. Do not disengage with your family. Lead them. Influence them. Show them what it means to walk um, upright with me. So in verse 20, here's a question. If God says there's been an outcry against Sodom, I'm going to go check it out. Who's doing the outcrying? Who's outcrying to God? Is it Abraham? It's probably Lot. Okay? It's probably Lot. You guys are probably saying, no, 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 it can't be Lot. I mean, you know, Lot's the guy that you're contrasting Abraham with tonight. I mean, how could it be Lot, right? Well... The New Testament refers to Lot as being righteous. You know, and Peter says, In righteous Lot, his soul was vexed day in and day out by what he heard and what he saw. Interesting, isn't it? Now, that doesn't mean that he was as righteous as Abraham, okay, but that he, or that he believed in God's promises, uh, that he was walking with God, but in comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah, I think that Lot was probably a lot more righteous than the rest of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, 
Sorry, I lost my place here. Yeah, so as far as the outcry, um, Lot is probably one that's, uh, you know, maybe not directly crying out to the Lord, but he's got to be saying, it's horrible here. I can't, I can't believe what's going on. I mean, we do the same thing in our society today. You know, like the, early this morning, I got this Amber Alert on my phone. You know, and you sit there and you think, like, what is, what is going on with this world? You know, these, something's happening. Things are going on. That's the outcry that probably Lot was, was kind of going through. Um, but, you know, the thing with Lot is that he didn't do anything to mitigate against it, did he? He just, you know, we're going to see here in just a few seconds that he was one of the elders in the city. He kind of sat at the gate, position of leadership. So as we close, here's, here's something else interesting about those verses that we read, and I'm going to try to move through this here pretty quickly. You know, God's heard the outcry, and he knows all before he starts to move on his judgment. He's going to send out a little uh, search party. He's going to investigate personally and get firsthand knowledge. Now, that, that amazes me because God knows everything. So why in the world would he need to send out a search party? Well, I, I think it was because he was being merciful to Lot and to Abraham. Um, and it would seem that God has allowed this, and he's allowed this to go on for such a, a period of time, very similar to what's going on in our country today. Very similar to what was going on in all of our lives before we came to the Lord. He allowed us to continue to sin and to sin and to sin until finally one of two things happened. Either we turned or we didn't. And, you know, thank God many of you, all of you here, you know, heard that that call, right? Now, if you recall back in chapter 15, verse 6, you know, God tells Abraham that his descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land. They're going to they're gonna end up in Egypt for about 400 years, and then they're going to come back. And then God says, listen to this, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full or it's not yet complete. It's an interesting phrase, and it tells us that God has a limit to how much sin he is willing to tolerate. Um, you know, I, I, was, I, was, I was going through this, and I, you know, you hear this, but for whatever reason, it just really hit me, you know, that, that God is tolerating this sin. He, he loves the sinner, but he's tolerating this. Uh, I don't know about you, but I mean, when somebody does something that bugs me, I mean, I can't contain myself, but God is containing himself. So he is tolerating. In Genesis 6, 3, it says, the spirit of God will not always strive with men. So as we see, you know, God, he is patient, he's gracious, he's merciful, but it's, a, it's only to a point. And I think that Sodom has reached this point. Uh, and I think at some point we're going to see that uh, our nation is going to reach that point. You don't have to turn to this, but allow me to read an insightful passage that I found from Ezekiel uh, 16, verses 49 and 50. Um, it's God speaking to, uh, to Jerusalem, and he says, I'm about to come against you, Jerusalem. And he says this, As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you have and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. That's pretty powerful. They lived in abundance. They didn't care about others. They didn't care about the poor. 
They just sort of became very narrow-minded, self-focused, prideful, um, that led to abomination. And in verse 23, as we move on here, we read the next passage, and it sounds like God and Abraham are having an argument. We read that earlier, and it sounds like uh, you know God is, is being backed into a corner, but that, that's not the case. And I'm not going to read this again, but if you recall, you know, there were times when you kept thinking, okay, why is Abraham starting here? Why does he keep going down and going down? And, um, but it's not argument. Um, and in verse 33, it, it doesn't say that when Abraham was finished and had done what he wanted. It says when God was finished, when the Lord had finished. So what is happening here is that God, is, in his perfect will, he wants to be merciful to Lot and his family by separating them out. And then he wants to destroy the wicked. So he initiates, or God initiates and leads this conversation. And when God is done with Abraham asking what God wanted him to ask, it's done. But it was God's desire all along for Abraham to be involved in prayer as part of the process. And therein lies the beauty of prayer. Earlier I said that we were going to talk a little bit about intercessory prayer. Well, Prayer isn't getting my done in heaven, but it's getting God's will done here on earth. And God had a perfect plan. And in prayer, he invites us. He invites me to tap into his program, not mine, but his. And that's what he was trying to do here with Abraham. So you guys familiar with Warren Wiersbe? Okay, Warren Wiersbe says this, and he says that it's here that Abraham becomes one of the select group of people known as intercessors. People who pray and labor for other people. Now, I don't know if you guys are called to the ministry of prayer or intercessory prayer, um, but there are a select group of people that God has called to be intercessors, and it's a very special ministry. I mean, it's a, it's a God-given gift to be intercessors for people. But it was Paul who wrote to Timothy and said, I would that you first of all would intercede, pray for kings and those in authority, intercede for them that we might live a peaceful life before God. So if we want to be like Jesus Christ, uh, we need to be intercessors. In fact, that's what Jesus' work is right now for us, is it not? He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, uh, praying for us according to the will of God. So that's a comfort for us, knowing that the Lord Jesus himself is interceded on my behalf and on your behalf. So the Lord went his way, uh, as we close up here. He went his way, and as he finished speaking, you know, I, I kind of wondered why did Abraham stop at 10? And as you start looking at this, some of the commentators, you know, kind of give some insight, so I'm not going to take credit for it. But, you know, Lot or uh, Abraham is thinking of Lot. He's thinking of his wife. He's thinking of his children. And there might be maybe husbands or wives of some of his kids. And uh, one of the commentators believes that, if you were to count up Lot and his wife and his children and you add a partner and a wife or a husband, you'd have about 10 people. So God was really directing Abraham down this path of, you know, 10 people, right? So now let's look at uh, chapter 19, verse 1, where it says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. It was a very good outward expression, but it was the, the opposite of, of what we saw with Abraham. 
Okay? I mean, what's he doing? He's sitting at the gate. Um, he probably didn't read Psalm 1. Remember, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, sits in the seat of the scornful, so on and so forth. Well, where is Lot? Sitting right there, right? Lot started by walking in the way of the ungodly and then finally pitching his tent towards Sodom. And now he's sitting as an elder in the gate and he's in a position of authority. And that's where he is when God meets him and uh, he comes face to face with uh, the two angels. Now, I'll close with this. If you guys go back and you think about verse 14, um, I want you guys to think about how it impacts you with the situation that you're going through right now, the trials or whatever, and how you're going to apply it. It's, it's really a gracious and a mild rebuke. Um, and, and I'll read it for you. It says, you laughed, I heard you. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I want that to resonate because we all have things that we go through and we always kind of get in our own little world and we forget that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. If your wife is unsaved, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. If your families are unsaved, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. If you're out of work and you've been looking for months, there's nothing too hard for the Lord, right? There was a letter that was written by someone, and I'll close with this, supposing that this letter was written by Jesus. So I I want you to hear this. I had to write and tell you how much I love you and care for you. Yesterday I saw you walking and laughing with your friends. I hope that soon you'd want me to walk along with you too. So I painted you a sunset to close your day and whispered a cool breeze to refresh you. I waited and you never called. I just kept on loving you though. And as I watched you, I wanted to touch you. I spilled moonlight on your face, trickling down your cheeks as so many tears have. I wanted so much to comfort you. The next day, I exploded a brilliant sunrise into the glorious morning for you. But you woke up late and rushed off to work. You didn't even notice me. My sky became cloudy. My tears were in the rain. I really do love you. I try to say it in the quiet of the green meadow and in the blue sky. The wind whispers my love throughout the treetops and spills into the vibrant colors of all the flowers. I shouted to you in the thunder of the great waterfalls and composed love songs for birds to sing to you. I warm you with my sunshine and perfume the air with nature's sweet scent. My love for you is deeper than any ocean and greater than any need in your heart. If you'd only realize how much I care, my father sends his love. I want you to meet him. He cares too. Fathers are just that way. So please call on me soon. No matter how long it takes, I'll wait because I love you. Your friend, Jesus. Guys, let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for just how you just show us how much you love us, Lord. Thank you, Father, for just these men and their willingness, Father, to sit here with you. Father, for just showing us just how much, Lord, we need a true friend, Lord. We ask you, Father, tonight that for the needs that are here, that you would just meet them, Lord, that you would be that true friend that these men are looking for father whatever they're struggling with father we just pray that nothing is too hard for you lord 
Help them realize that, Lord. Father, we thank you for our wives. We thank you for our families, our kids. Father, for the jobs that we have and those that are struggling to find work, we lift them to you, Father, that you would just be gracious and merciful to them, Lord. Thank you, Father, for teaching us what it's like to have a friend like you. Father, just strengthen our lives, empower us, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Father. Thank you for the church that we are so well-fed, Lord. Help us not to get fat, Lord. Help us to, to exercise and to exercise it in ministry uh, back to you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you, and we pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.